be looking at 127 through 30 on page 980 in the Pew Bible. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, that we might live a life worthy of the gospel. That's our heart's desire and prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me for a moment that you, de- you decide to go visit a new place, a new country. And when you get there and you meet the people, you begin to get a picture of what that place is like through the people as you get to know the people around you. And you begin to understand their cultural norms and how they conduct themselves. I imagine this becomes evident for people who come to the United States or even when we visit different parts of the states, in fact, right? When you go to the south, you go visit the south. I was in Kentucky. Oh, that's what they're like in the south when you get to know the people. Or if you go to California, oh, that's what it's like in California. That's what the people are like in California. Or when you go to the northeast, Oh, that's what they're like in the Northeast. We'll see if that worked. I don't know why it shut off. You get, you get a picture of what the place is like. One's conduct, whether intentionally or not, says something or reveals something about the place where they are from or the place to which they belong. In our text today, Paul is going to call the church to conduct themselves in a certain way, as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel. Verse 27 is going to set the stage for for much of what Paul will say throughout the rest of this letter to the Philippians. And In our introduction to this book, I mentioned that this verse, verse 27, could be the theme of the entire book itself, a life worthy of the gospel with exhortations on how we do this and then practical examples of of what it looks like with Paul, with Timothy, with Epaphroditus, and ultimately with Jesus. That's where he's he's going in this letter. So in our text this morning, we see three characteristics of a life worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel stands firm in one spirit, strives together for gospel faith, and is not frightened by opposition. So first, to live a life worthy of the gospel, stand firm in one spirit. If we as as a church are to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, then we must stand firm in one spirit. We must be marked by a life of unity. 
a life of unity. So notice, notice verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the first part of verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul opens this section now with, with an exhortation. It's a command. In fact, this is the first command in this letter. He's unpacked his current situation, his current circumstance and adversity. He's in chains in Rome, waiting for his trial. But he rejoices in it because it served to advance the gospel among the unbelievers that he's involved with. It gave boldness and confidence to the believers. And he seems confident that he will continue for their spiritual growth. And now, in light of this, in light of the, the adversity that he faces, whether he will see them or not, he will be assured, he wants them to be assured to follow after his pattern of life. So Paul exhorts the church to live a certain way. Only let your manner of life. Paul zooms in and, and has this central focus. It's a singular focus. Only. Just one thing. Above all. Let your manner of life. It could be translated, behave as citizens. It refers to the political duties of a citizen of a city. This is where we get our word police or politics or political. This is where we get our word from. We see this word in 320. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in the command, we are to behave as is proper and fitting for citizens of heaven. Paul is concerned about their citizenship. You recall that Philippi was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. It was a small town in Macedonia, probably the size of Carroll. And as a Roman colony, it was a Little Rome, so to speak. Little Rome. And when you meet people from Philippi, you were getting a taste or preview of what Rome is like or was like. It valued status, rank, titles, and one's citizenship. They took pride in this. L let me give you a little background to, to help us understand what's going on here. I want us to understand the cultural norms and expectations of these citizens of Philippi. Okay? This will help us understand the command a little better. It's been observed that at the time of the, this letter, the primary titles for the emperor were Lord and Savior. The emperor was honored like the gods. One scholar stated, in a city like Philippi, this would have meant that every public event and much else within its boundaries would have taken place in a context of giving honor to the emperor with the acknowledgement that, in this case, Nero was Lord and Savior to whom people would bow the knee. It's going to 
shed some light on 2, 5 through 11, isn't it? In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This is what was expected of the behavior of the citizens of Philippi. And it's in this place where, where the Apostle Paul says, only let your manner of life as citizens of heaven be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Live in a Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of the gospel, as citizens who belong to Jesus Christ. Live out your heavenly citizenship, so to speak, now, because your ultimate citizenship is in heaven, not Philippi. So your actions then should be in step with the good news of Jesus Christ and not necessarily the expectations of those in Philippi. And to use this phrase, worthy of the gospel of Christ, means that the good news of Jesus Christ is the standard for how we live our lives. The good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection and bringing salvation to all who trust in him is the standard by which we must live and order our lives. Not Rome, not Philippi, not Iowa. That's the point that Paul is communicating here. Their commitment to Christ was at odds with the culture and society in Philippi. And if, if this means that choosing which way to live, choosing, we must choose the conduct that is in step with the gospel of Christ. Their, their allegiance was a threat to the emperor and the political establishment. So what must they choose? Only behave as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Live in Philippi, or wherever you live, right, for us, as those who belong to Jesus Christ and heaven. We might not experience this sort of context or threat in our world. We have a lot of freedom to worship Christ here in the U.S. But perhaps a day is coming when some of our freedoms will be taken away from us, perhaps. And even if they're not, the charge is still the same, isn't it? Live as citizens of a heavenly home. Behave in such a way that is governed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question we now need to ask is this. How? How can I live a life worthy of the gospel. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? How can we as a church live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? Because if I'm being told to do something, I don't know about you, if I'm being told to do something or behave a certain way, I need to know what it looks like. Right? We do, we do this with our, we tell our children what we require of them. It's helpful to explain it and even show it, to give them something practical they can get their hands on to understand, isn't it? And that's what Paul unpacks for us now. He gives them practical ways to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. First, to live a life worthy of the gospel then, 
Stand firm in one spirit. Notice the end of verse 27 again. That I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Stand firm in one spirit as soldiers. As soldiers. The imagery here is of a soldier being firm and steadfast. Not moving or wavering from their position. It was a metaphor used to describe soldiers being persistent in guarding their posts. No matter what, they're not budging. No amount of trial, adversity, difficulty will cause them to waver from this responsibility and task. Soldiers know that, don't we? And and by describing it in this way, as a soldier with this military metaphor, Paul highlights the fact that believers are in a war. We're engaged in a real battle in the same conflict that Paul has and even still has as we see from verse 30. Whether we know it or not, the Christian life is a spiritual battle. It is a war that we are engaged in. So think about that in, in, in context of our lives. This, this soldier mentality, this military mindset. The call to stand firm and hold our ground will have greater success if it's done together in one spirit. And so like soldiers, we must stand firm and remain steadfast in what we believe, right? especially in today's world, not in what our culture tells us is acceptable, Right? We must. We, we see churches drifting, moving away from the gospel and the implications of it. We must stand firm in what we believe about the Bible, about sin, about Jesus Christ, and about the only way to get to heaven. To behave as citizens worthy of the gospel, we must then hold firmly to the gospel We must be united and unified around the gospel and remain steadfast in it. Second, to live a life worthy of the gospel, strive together for gospel faith. Strive together for gospel faith. If we as a church are to live lives worthy of the gospel, then we must strive together for the faith of the gospel. We must not only be marked by unity, we must be marked by perseverance. Notice verse 27 again, especially the last part of verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, and then here it is, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's desire He desires to see that with one mind, they are striving together for the faith of the gospel. Or as the Christian Standard Bible puts it, in one accord, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. With one purpose, fighting together for the faith. We're not only called to be united as soldiers, but now we are to contend together as athletes. The metaphor that Paul picks up here 
he picks up on this, is, is that of an athlete. This, this, is, this term striving side by side is where we get our word athlete or athletics from. Same word. And that's what athletes do. They, they strive, they contend, they fight. As a coach, I have a privilege of coaching Johnny's sixth grade basketball team. Some might not think that's a privilege to coach a bunch of sixth grade boys. I have a privilege of watching a lot of sports competitions. I especially enjoy coaching his team and watching them compete and go out and compete. When you watch these little sixth graders, right, just picture these little sixth graders. They're, they're running up and down the basketball court. We had three games yesterday, so here they are. They're running up and down the basketball court and you begin to get a picture of what it means to contend together. Contending together. Although imperfectly at times, but they're doing a pretty good job. They're doing a pretty good job of not having their own agenda or even of someone having to be the hero. But sometimes external pressures, they can cause some tension within. But for the most part, they are striving side by side as they work hard, as they exert energy and effort to execute because they all have the same goal. They just want to win. They don't win very often. They just want to win. When they strive together, remembering the opponent is the other team and not one another and not the refs, how do you think it goes? They succeed. They're striving together. They, they succeed. Although they might not always win every battle, they're, but they're unified and they, they persevere and they do well together. It, it's pretty special to watch, even with sixth graders. We might think of professional at the professional level, competing as a team. We think of football players working hard, giving everything they've got, doing their job to accomplish the same goal. They want to win championships. And in Paul's context, it might be more than just a fun game. We might think of the gladiators who were trained athletes being thrown into the arena, into the Colosseum. And if you want to get out alive, you better strive together you better work together and you better strive side by side. That's the imagery. There is a real struggle together against a strong opponent. And like athletes, we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. We are to fight and battle to see to it that we are making progress in the, in the gospel. That we are striving to advance the gospel that we are carrying out our mission, marching forward, right? We're marching forward on the offensive to accomplish our goal of knowing Christ and making him known. So if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, then it will involve unity and perseverance. So as we apply this in greater detail, the question we might want to ask ourselves, is my life marked by these things. Standing firm, striving together. Is our church characterized by these? And if not, 
what ways can I help bring unity and perseverance to the life of the church? Do I view the Christian life like a soldier in war? Maybe one of these metaphors jumps out at you more. Do I view the Christian life as a soldier in war or as an athlete in competition? Let's be like soldiers who remain firm and steadfast. Let's be like athletes who strive together as a unit to accomplish our goal of knowing Christ and making him known. Let's cooperate, let's coordinate, work together as a team to make progress in the Christian life because we all want to grow in Christ and we know that there are real opponents against us. And we see the reality of the opponents in these final verses and in our final point. So third and finally, to live a life worthy of the gospel, do not be frightened by opposition. Do not be frightened by your opponents. If we as a church and as individuals want to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy and behave as citizens of heaven, then we must not be intimidated by our opponents. We must have Christ-like courage. Christ-like courage. And we must recognize that suffering is a part of the Christian life. Notice, notice verses 28 through 30. Actually, let's start towards the middle of 27, just so you can see it here in context. That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The Philippians were facing real threats and pressures from the outside and from false teachers. And Paul will get to that in chapter 3. They're, they're engaged in the same conflict as the Apostle Paul. And we've, we've observed already that their call to Christ-like living was completely at odds with the culture around them and the, and the expect, expectations of citizens of Philippi. And so they're experiencing great persecution because of it. And certainly there was and is a temptation to shrink back in fear. When someone threatens you, I don't know about you, but this is how it is for me, there's a temptation to shrink back in fear when someone threatens you or intimidates you or any time that you face some sort of opposition. This is common in all generations. We could think of Israel's history, for example. In Exodus 14, Israel had just been delivered out of Egypt, out of their bondage in Egypt. And they're at the edge of the Red Sea. And the people of Israel saw the enemy. The Egyptians are marching toward them. Real threats, real danger, real opposition. And they're terrified. They cry out to God for help. And then they wished, oh, I wish we'd stayed back in Egypt. Better to serve as slaves in Egypt than to be in this situation that we're in now. 
And then Moses declares them in, in Exodus 14, 13. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. They needed courage. They needed to remember that the Lord was for them and not against them. We might think of Joshua. As he's raised up after Moses, he's raised up to lead the people into the promised land. Moses delivers them out. Joshua brings them in. And he drives out the enemy. And before he does so, in Joshua 1, 6 through 10, it's a longer passage, you can read it. Joshua is told numerous times, be strong and courageous. You just see it over and over. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or Israel, when they saw Goliath. Here's this great champion. They're filled with fear. They're terrified. Where there is danger, threats, or pressure from the outside, there is a tendency to be frightened. So Paul encourages and challenges the believers in Philippi not to be frightened or intimidated by the opposition. And then he provides several reasons why. He says it becomes a, a sign to the unbelievers of their eternal, uh, to the unbelievers of their eternal destruction. It becomes a, becomes a sign to the believers of their salvation, and that from God. It serves to give believers assurance and confidence in the Lord that they really are following Christ, that they really are saved. Because what we see in verse 29 is that those who endure hardship for the sake of Christ, it reveals that God is for you and not against you. The Christian life involves not only believing in Jesus, but also suffering for his sake. The Lord graciously gifts his people with not only faith in Christ, but suffering. Suffering. Suffering becomes a privilege for the Christian because it brings assurance that we belong to Christ and that God is for us, that God is with us. Did you notice that in verse 29? For it has been granted to you. It has been graced to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it is by grace that you suffer for Christ. It is a privilege this was how the early church viewed suffering. Acts 5, 40 and 41. And when they, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. As a missionary, the Apostle Paul would return to the churches that he established. And he would, according to Acts 14.22, he would strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith 
and sang that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How often do we hear that? As we suffer for Christ, we are following in the steps of the suffering servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And that's what we are reminded of here even this morning as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together. We are reminded that Christ suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. As we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, we are reminded that his body, that Jesus' body was given for us. And his blood was shed for us. Violent, violent death. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. His suffering, think about this for a moment. His suffering, Christ's suffering on the cross, brought us salvation. As we partake of the meal, that's what we see pictured. Perhaps our suffering for Christ, for his sake, maybe we're not experiencing it yet, I don't know. But when we do, perhaps our suffering for Christ would lead others to trust in Jesus as well and bring them salvation which is only found in Jesus Christ. Because of his suffering, might it motivate us to stand firm, to be united around the gospel? And in a moment, we'll, we'll eat and drink together. We'll do this at the same time to signify our unity in Christ. But might Christ's suffering, his sacrificial death for us, might it motivate us, not only just to be united, but to strive together, to struggle together, to contend together, and not be frightened by opponents. And might it prepare us to suffer for his name and be engaged in the same battle with other Christians. So that we could reveal to those around us what it looks like to be citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our heart's desire and prayer is that we would conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That we would be say, behave as citizens of heaven. That we would stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and that we would not be frightened by those who oppose us, and that we would be engaged in battle together, knowing that we're not alone in this fight. And might that encourage us and motivate us and give us assurance of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.